Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the most famous Bible teachers in the 20th century, became pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he commenced his ministry with a series of sermons in the Book of Romans. It took him three and a half years to get through it. Twenty years later, he began a radio ministry, and again, he commenced with the Book of Romans. Uh, later, those messages were published in a four-volume set of commentaries on this famous epistle to the Romans. In that first volume, Dr. Barnhouse said this, and I quote, In studying the epistle to the Romans, the procedure I shall follow may be likened to two different views of a farm. A man who has just purchased a farm has the opportunity of flying over it to get a view of its contours from the air. He sees the overall picture of the fields and the woods and the farm buildings. After this, he begins his work on the farm. And year after year, he goes from field to field, plowing, disking, fertilizing, planting, cultivating, harvesting. As time goes on, he learns to know the farm as well as he knows the curves of his child's cheek. He will remember a thousand details that he learned while going about his daily farm work. He will know the soft spots that must not be plowed too early in the spring, lest the tractor bog down. He will know the heavy clay points where his plowshares were torn out of the ground. He will know the wood lot and the orchard and all the other things that go to make the pleasant life of the good earth. I would like to suggest that before we plow the ground, before we look at all of the minutiae of the book of Romans, which we will do in the days to come, that we board a plane, soar to the sky, and get the plane, P-L-A-N-E, view of the book of Romans. This is a critical book, perhaps one of the most important in all of the Bible. And it is easy, frankly, to get lost in all of the details of this book. More than one Bible teacher has taken multiple years to go through all of the details that are here. I'd like for us to look at the book and look at it thoroughly, but so that we don't get bogged down like a tractor in a soft field in the details, I want us to begin by soaring over it and getting the broad picture. I want us to look at the book in its broad strokes. Before we examine each room, let's get the layout of the house. Let's look at its overall design. Matter of fact, I would suggest that you take a note or two. 
uh, some very simple, basic notes, but just a bare outline of this book and what it's about will help us keep our course as we go through it. Let me begin by suggesting that this book is actually a letter. It is in the format of an ancient letter. Now, letters in our day follow a standard form. Up in the right-hand corner, you put the date, and over to the left, you put dear so-and-so, and then follows the body of the letter, uh, a salutation, and your signature. In a similar fashion, an ancient letter followed a standard format. It differed from ours, but nonetheless, it was a standard format. It consisted of, first, a salutation. That salutation identified the author, the recipients, and gave a greeting. The second part of the letter was a thanksgiving followed by a prayer. Then was the body of the book, and it concluded with personal greetings and the benediction. The book of Romans follows that outline very carefully. In the opening verses, 1 to 7, Paul gives a salutation in which he identifies himself as the author and the church at Rome as the recipients. He also gives a greeting. Then in chapter 1, verses 8 to 17, he gives a thanksgiving and prayer. Beginning in verse 18 and extending all the way through chapter 15, verse 33, is the actual body of the book. And then in the last chapter, chapter 16, there are personal greetings, some admonitions, and a benediction. Now, what I would like for us to do is focus in on the body of the book. We will consider the salutation and the prayer and the thanksgiving in due course. But to get this sweep of the book, I'd like for us to focus on just the body. Say beginning with verse 18 and moving through chapter 15. That will give us the heart and core of this book. Let me begin discussing the book by suggesting the subject of the book. This is perhaps one of the things that you need to note. The subject of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. May I repeat that? Sounds simple. It's very critical. The subject of the book of Romans is righteousness, and more particularly, the righteousness of God. Now, it's that subject I want us to trace through the book. In the first place, Paul discusses the fact that righteousness is needed. As a matter of fact, I'm going to divide the body of the book into five points, and that's the first one. Simply stated, righteousness is needed. Paul begins that discussion in chapter 1, verse 18, and continues it through chapter 3, verse 20. Now, it is not my purpose today to go into all the details into these three chapters. We will do that in days to come. But let me just point out that that subsection in Romans can be divided into three parts. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going through verse 32, Paul begins to talk about the fact that all men are 
in unrighteousness, that the wrath of God abides on the whole of unregenerate creation, that men need righteousness. Now, some Bible teachers want to say that this chapter is talking about the fact that Gentiles need righteousness. And while, as compared to chapter 2, that is true, in another sense, he doesn't say he's speaking to just Gentiles. The first chapter indicates that he's talking to all men. More specifically, what he's doing is this. He begins in this section by saying that God has revealed himself in creation, but that man has rejected that revelation of God in creation, and therefore he stands condemned before God, that he needs righteousness for the very simple reason he does not have it. So, in this section entitled, Righteousness Needed, Paul starts by saying, that all men are in unrighteousness and need the righteousness of God. Now, <clears throat> that immediately brings up the situation with the Jew. I mean, they are a special class, at least from a biblical point of view. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and going down through chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that the Jews are under condemnation, that they are not exempt that they too are in unrighteousness. A little more specifically, he is saying in this section that men will be judged by their works and by the amount of light that they have. So the Jew may be able to boast that he has a little more revelation than others, that he has the Old Testament scripture, but nonetheless, he too, like the rest of humanity, is in a need of righteousness judged by his works and the response to the light he had, he too is a sinner. So then Paul concludes in the final section of this subsection in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that no one seeks after God, that both Jew and Gentile alike are sinners before God. All have sinned. All have come short. All need righteousness. Let me pause here and illustrate what we mean by that. This is not to suggest that all men are as wicked as they could be, for obviously some men live better lives than others. It's just that, as measured against the very standard of the holiness of God, all men come short of what God demands. Though one man may be more righteous than another in a relative sense of the term, when measured by the absolute standard of God's righteousness, all fall short of that righteousness. It would be like a group of men standing in the state of Texas trying to throw stones and hit Canada. One may be able to throw his stone further than the other, but all fall short. They all miss the mark. None are able to hit Canada as they stand in Texas. So the first major movement of this book is that righteousness is needed, that all have sinned, 
that all live in unrighteousness. The second movement in the book is that righteousness is imparted by faith. I should say imputed by faith. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and going down through chapter 5, verse 21, he discusses the fact that righteousness is imputed. He first begins by explaining the doctrine of justification by faith. He does that in what is left of chapter 3, namely chapter 3, verse 21 through 331. Now at this point, I need to pause for just a second and say a word about the doctrine of justification. The Greek word justification means to declare righteous. God is in the business of declaring some men righteous. Now, if you've just listened to what I've said, your response to that is, how can he do that? You have just stood up there and said that all men are, in fact, unrighteous. Now, how can you say that God comes along and just declares some righteous? And the answer is that Jesus Christ died to pay for men's sin. And he then arose from the dead so that when individuals trust in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ is put to their account. It is imputed, if you will, to them. So the doctrine of justification, and by the way, that means to declare righteous, you see, is simply saying that when a person has faith, God imputes to that person the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that doctrine is illustrated in the book of Romans in chapter 4, verses 1 to 25. In that portion, he illustrates the fact that Abraham was justified by faith. And the second Old Testament figure he points to is David. Both Abraham and David were justified by faith. So Paul is claiming the whole of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, teaches the doctrine of justification by faith. Then, in the last section of this subsection of the book, he talks about the fact that righteousness is enjoyed. In chapter 5, he talks about the benefits that we have because we have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So, the first section of this book is that righteousness is needed, and the second is that righteousness is imputed when a person trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Again, let me illustrate. A moment ago I suggested that it was as if a group of men stood in the state of Texas and all tried to throw stones and hit Canada. Let's return to that illustration and let me suggest that now it is like Jesus Christ standing in the state of Texas and throwing a stone and being God, he hits Canada. Now that illustration 
is a little bit of an oversimplification of the doctrine of justification, but it does get at one of the basic concepts in justification. You see, what this amounts to is God has a righteous standard revealed in his law, that we've all broken the law and thus fallen short of the standard. The penalty of that is death. But Jesus Christ became a man, lived a perfectly righteous life on the earth, hit Canada with a stone from Texas, so to speak, and then gave his self as a righteous sacrifice to pay for our sin. So it is as if when we trust in Jesus Christ, God puts to our account the fact that Christ was righteous. So whereas I personally cannot throw the stone to hit Canada, Christ does. And when I trust in him, what he did in his life and in his death is put to my account. So righteousness is imputed to me when I, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ. Now that's the second section of the book. There is a third. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, and going through chapter 8, verse 39, the Apostle Paul begins to entertain objections to this doctrine. As a matter of fact, if man is declared righteous simply by faith, what does that say about man? What does that say about sin? What does that say about the law that God has given? Well, if you will turn to Romans chapter 6, I will show you that Paul, in essence, entertains these various objections. As a matter of fact, Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1, where he asked the first of these three questions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now look at chapter 6, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And finally, look at chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin. So three times in these two chapters, Paul raises an objection and then answers it. Each time he begins by an emphatic denial of the implication of the question, translated in the New King James translation with the phrase, certainly not. The old King James gave it, God forbid. So he raises these objections, he emphatically denies them, and then goes into detail to answer them. In this section, while in one sense of the term he is bringing up objections to the doctrine of justification, in another sense he gets into the subject of sanctification, starting out with the idea that we are now declared righteous by faith because of God's grace. He brings up the question, well then, let's just go sin. And man would end up again in unrighteousness. So the real question in this book, yea, the specific question in this section, is how does a man get to the place where he actually accomplishes righteousness? 
He's been declared righteous, but how does he get to the place where he actually accomplishes righteousness? And that is theologically called the doctrine of sanctification, and that's what Paul is teaching in this section. Without going into a lot of depth, because we don't have the time today, let me just point out in passing that the answer is in chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Or drop down to verse 19 where he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now, as you can tell from these verses, and particularly from the last phrase in verse 16, it is now obedience that leads to righteousness. So, on the one hand, I am declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. On the other hand, in order for the righteousness of God to be worked out in my life, I must come to grips with the fact that I have now died in Christ to sin. I have been raised in Christ to be alive before God, and I now have the ability as a child of God to obey God and His Word. And it is as I obey the Word of God that righteousness is accomplished in my life. So righteousness is again the key to this section of the book. Actually, there's one more chapter in this section, and it is chapter 8. And in this chapter, uh, he is teaching that it is really the Holy Spirit who gives us the enablement to obey the Word of God. You might look specifically at chapter 8, verse 5, where he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So, in this passage, he is telling us that those who are spiritually minded are empowered to do what God has commanded us to do. And thus, righteousness can actually be accomplished in our lives. Again, let me go back to my basic illustration. All men fall short of the mark when they try to live a righteous life. They are like men standing in Texas trying to hit Canada with a stone. On the other hand, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, stood in Texas, so to speak, threw a stone and hit Canada. When I trust in him, I am given the credit for what he accomplished. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin. He arose from the dead, and when I trust in him, my sins are forgiven, and I am declared righteous. But what I am telling you now is that when I trust in Jesus Christ, I am placed into Christ 
Romans chapter 6, and that now it is as if I, in Christ, am standing in Texas, hurling stones at Canada. And now, because I am in him, I'm able to score. I'm able to hit Canada. But it is my ability to do that in Christ through the Holy Spirit that makes that kind of thing possible. So what he's saying in this section is that it is now possible in Christ for you to present yourself to the Lord, obey him, and live a righteous life. In Christ, you can do that. Now there is a discussion. There is a problem. If you are discussing the righteousness of God and you've been saying the kinds of things that I've just been saying, you've got to come to grips with the fact that God chose the Jewish people in the Old Testament and now it appears that he has set them aside and he's turning to Gentiles. Is God righteous to do that? So in the next section of the book of Romans, the fourth section, he discusses the problem of the Jew. Let's call this righteousness vindicated. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he discusses the Jew. Actually, there are three different things he says about this problem. The first is, he discusses in chapter 9, Israel's past. He discusses the doctrine of election. And in one sense of the term, he says that it is God who chose to do this. And who are you to object to what God wants to do? The second thing he discusses in this section is Israel's present. That is their rejection, and that's the real problem. It is not just what God elected to do, chapter 9. It is what Israel has actually done, chapter 10. They have chosen to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in the third section, chapter 11, he talks about Israel's future, the fact that God will one day, once again, redeem Israel. So the righteousness of God in the case of Israel is vindicated because of his sovereignty, because of their free will, because of his future program for them. It will be seen when all is done that God was righteous. He did fulfill his promise to the Jew. God is righteous in saving unrighteous men by faith. God is righteous and his righteousness is vindicated in Romans 9 through 12. There's a fifth and final section in this book. Begins in chapter 12, verse 1, and concludes in chapter 15. In this section, Paul again discusses righteousness. Only this time he discusses righteousness as it is practiced. So it is righteousness practiced in the life of a believer. Very simply, he talks about the different areas of a believer's life. He talks about the believer in the church in chapter 12, 1 to 8. He talks about the believer in society, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. He talks about the believer toward government in the first 14 verses of chapter 13. And in chapter 14 and the first 13 verses of chapter 15, he discusses the believer and his life toward other believers. 
So righteousness is to be practiced, if you will, in the church, in society, toward government, and toward other believers. Now, at this point in the book of Romans, we get down to the very practical day-in and day-out conduct of a believer, that he can not only accomplish isolated acts of righteousness, he can live a righteous life. And he can do that at church, and he can do that in society, he can do that in his relationship to the government, and he can do that in his relationship to other believers. Let me just say in passing something I'll spend quite a bit of time on when we get to this section of Romans. As I studied that section, I was struck with the emphasis on love. In the final analysis, what God is really after is that we live loving lives. And in my study of the New Testament in general and the book of Romans in particular, I think it is not too much to say that righteousness is not just conformity to a group of external rules and rituals, but that righteousness begins with an internal attitude of wanting to do what is best for other people. Granted, it is wanting to do what is right, but what is right is loving, so that love is the ultimate in the New Testament. It is the ultimate issue in the area of righteousness of all things. So when you begin to live a righteous life in the biblical sense of the term, you will discover that you are not just focusing on external rules and rituals and regulations, but that you are focusing on people and you are treating them right. You are doing what is right by them and you will find yourself loving them might just point out, since we've recently studied the book of Galatians, that that is exactly the kind of thing that Paul concluded in that book as well. Let me one more time go back to my illustration. I started out saying it's like a group of men standing in the state of Texas hurling stones toward Canada and missing the mark. Jesus Christ, the God-man, however, was able to do it. And when we, who are unrighteous, trust in Christ who is righteous, then we have his righteousness imputed to us. And now, of all things, in Christ, we, by the power of the Spirit of God, can hurl stones and hit Canada. I would now like to go one step beyond that and say, you can not only hit Canada in Christ, you can hit from the state of Texas every province in the nation of Canada. Say, boy, this illustration is really getting out of hand. I mean, that's not natural at all. I mean, that's not normal. Why, that's fantasy and fairy tale. Well, you're right about the fact that it's not natural. I'd use the word supernatural. Yeah, but it's not fantasy and it's not fairy tale. It's fact that a believer who is in Christ can, by the power of the Spirit of God, live a righteous life in all those areas. To use my hyperbole, like standing in Texas and hitting every province of Canada. 
You can live a righteous, loving life at church. Believe it or not. You can live a righteous, loving life in society. You can live a righteous, loving life toward the government. And you can live a righteous, loving life toward each other. So this book that we call Romans is teaching us that man, even though he is unrighteous, can practice righteousness. First, by trusting in Jesus Christ and being declared righteous. And then, secondly, by actually practicing righteousness through obedience to God's Word. But through and through, throughout the five parts of this book, the subject is righteousness. It is needed, it is provided, meaning imputed. It can be accomplished by obedience. That's stating it in principle. It's vindicated and it is practiced as we specifically obey the specific principles and precepts of the Word of God. In order to close, I'd like to do two things. I'd first like to take one more careful look at the book of Romans. Now, there's one little element I've left out of this uh, brief overview of the book. And secondly, I'd like to take one more practical look at what is here. By the careful look, I mean this, that if you look at the book of Romans carefully, you will discover these five things I've spelled out and the unifying factor being righteousness, but you will discover something else. And that is throughout the book, he repeatedly comes back to this Jew-Gentile problem. He does it throughout the book. You can't read it and study it without being struck by it. Take that first section where he talks about sin, the fact that righteousness is needed. He demonstrates that both Jew and Gentile are in need of righteousness. Or take that second section where he talks about the fact that righteousness has been provided, that righteousness is imputed by faith. In that section, he takes pains to point out that this is accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ, that both Jew and Gentile must come to Christ by faith and trust in him. But that doesn't mean he drops that subplot. If you keep reading and you get to, toward the end of the book, you will again discover that he comes back to this subplot of Jew and Gentile. In chapters 14 and 15, he again stresses the fact that both Jew and Gentile are to live harmoniously together in one body, namely the church. So he's demonstrating in this book that both Jew and Gentile are unrighteous before God, that both Jew and Gentile are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, and that both Jew and Gentile can practice righteousness in Christ by being obedient to the Word of God in dependence upon the Spirit of God. So as you're going through this book, don't miss the fact that he constantly pulls these two themes of Jew and Gentile together. But let me return one more time and look at the book practically. 
the practical point of this book is righteousness. And when we look at that subject, we have to concur with the Apostle Paul that we all lack it. We all need it. We all fall short. If you're honest with yourself and you know your heart, you have to conclude that that's the case. You also have to conclude that try as you will, you cannot make righteousness. You can't make the mark. You constantly fall short. If you understand anything at all about the Word of God, you understand that you don't become righteous in your own effort. You are first declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. But then, in an interesting twist, if you're going to practice righteousness, it's going to demand all that is within you. It's going to demand effort and obedience, as well as faith and trust in the Spirit of God. What I just want to underscore before we close today is that what Paul is hammering away at in this book is God wants us unrighteous people to be righteous. And that's accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ and practically worked out in our lives by obedience to the Word of God. I think we live in a day where a lot of people do not feel loved, mainly because of the breakup and the pressures on the home. And so a lot of men in the ministry are emphasizing the fact that God loves you. And he does. No question about that. And we are spending time talking about the fact that there is fellowship in a body of people called the church. And there is all of that. But if you're going to take your relationship with God seriously, you've got to come to grips with the fact that this book demands righteousness. Righteousness you don't have and can't get outside of Jesus Christ. But as you study the book of Romans, you realize how that's possible. You can be declared righteous by faith and you can practice righteousness by obedience. So this book, above all books in the Bible, demands and provides righteousness. A number of years ago, I went to a church to speak for a week. And I took a book of the Bible, it wasn't the book of Romans, and I simply taught the book. It happened to have been the book of Titus. When I got done with the week, the pastor, not the janitor, not the backslider, not the non-Christian, the pastor, said to me, Wow, I don't think I ever realized before just how much God wants us to live a righteous life. I was a little taken back by that because he was a pastor and he should have known it. But I must say to you, as I look at the broad overview of the book of Romans, I walk away saying, wow, if there's anything that comes through, it's righteousness. God demands it. 
He turns around and provides it through the work of his son and the work of the Holy Spirit. What we have to do is respond to that by trusting in his son and obeying his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the net result will be the righteousness of God worked out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book because it reveals you to us. But we confess to you that we fall short of what we see. So we're doubly grateful for the fact that you have provided your righteousness to us through your Son and the power to walk with you and actually develop that righteousness in our lives. Lord, as we are exposed to this book, may it not just affect our minds, but may it affect our will and our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.